John chapter 4 this morning, John chapter 4, and uh, we're going to look at the continuing uh, part of what we started last week where Jesus meets the woman at the well in Sychar of Samaria, or near Sychar of Samaria. And uh, last week we saw how Jesus satisfies, and uh, today my sermon title has uh, come from verse 32, where Jesus says, But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. And uh, so we're going to talk this morning about not being hungry uh, and what that means in terms of satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's read this morning from chapter 4, John chapter 4, verse 27. And upon this came his disciples, so as after Jesus has been speaking with her. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man asked him, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her pot and went her way into the city and saith to them, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto eternal life, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor, Other men labored, and ye are entered into their burdens. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves And know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask, dear God, that through the Spirit you would let it live within our hearts and our eyes. Let us see the beauty and glory of who you are May it inspire us to live for you, to pursue you, to be satisfied in you alone. We thank you for this opportunity. Encourage us this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we meet Jesus has been uh, out here. He's traveling north to Galilee, passes through Samaria on his way, stops there for a rest at a well where he meets this woman. While he's waiting and resting there at the well outside of the city, the disciples have have gone into the city and uh, now they're just coming back probably from Samaritan Subway, having gotten their their foot-long subs and enjoying that. And they've come out and said, Jesus, here, here's your tuna on rye. 
And Jesus has said, no, I'm not hungry. I don't want the tuna on rye today. I've got other things on my mind. It's perfect, really, the way this works out, because Jesus has just told this woman that she can be satisfied in her soul by him. And now, when the disciples come back, we see that very satisfaction expressed in Jesus himself. He's saying, I, I'm the one that will satisfy you. And as he ministers himself and shows the gospel to this woman, he finds the satisfaction in himself. Maybe, like you, I find this passage hard to read and not think of Matthew 4, verse 4, where Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what is it that Jesus finds so satisfying? What satisfies Jesus here? He says, look, I'm not hungry. There's something else that is feeding me. Verse 34 tells us what that is. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. To do the will of God. That's where Jesus finds his satisfaction. To do the will of the Father that sent him. For us, of course, it takes us back to where the woman was. For us, it begins by believing that Jesus is the one who satisfies our deepest desires our most deepest need in being saved from sin. To believe that Jesus can set us free from sin, give us purpose and direction in life by making us right with God. Remember, he is the living water. And when we notice that, not only is he the living water for a moment, but he is the living water, which means we will never thirst again. We will never thirst with Jesus. He is completely satisfying. So just as believing him satisfies our deepest need for salvation, living for him satisfies us every day. It keeps our satisfactions. We pursue him and pursue the one who gave us this water. We find our deep satisfaction. To live with and for Jesus is fulfilling enjoyable and purposeful. Jesus is in an unusual situation here, speaking with this Samaritan woman. And even we see in the first verse there, verse 27, even the disciples are perplexed by the circumstances that Jesus is in. But they trust him. And they would soon learn, by trusting him and following his lead, they would soon learn a lifelong lesson which hopefully today we will be able to get a glimpse of and learn for ourselves. There's something very encouraging in the way Jesus interacts with people, especially the unexpected. So the disciples are perplexed about why Jesus is, is doing what he's doing, and, and the woman the same. Why would Jesus speak to me, a Samaritan woman? And the disciples come back and think, well, where's the, where's the husband? They're in public, and he's speaking to her of spiritual things without that. But something must be there, and there's this perplexing circumstance. One of the things I find encouraging and, and wonderful about Jesus Christ is he is... He is never afraid of being misunderstood. Of having people see him where he's at and thinking something's wrong here and then go, oh, no, 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 wait, let me just explain everything now. He isn't afraid of being misunderstood so that we will soon learn 
the lesson. He wasn't pressured to act or explain when he waited three days to heal Lazarus. He wasn't uh, worried or, or troubled when people accused him and ridiculed him when he went in with Matthew, the publican, and his friends and ate lunch. It didn't bother him what people thought of him in those environments. Why was he talking with her? He doesn't feel the need to address their concern, at least not yet. He was willing to be misunderstood so that those who would trust him would see his purpose. They would see what he was doing. They would learn something greater. You know, oftentimes people are going to misunderstand you as you live for Christ. Wonder why you do things or, or ridicule or, or mock you for certain things or certain expectations you have or the way you do things. Don't be afraid to be misunderstood, to be mocked or to be rejected. If you keep pursuing Christ, the answer to those perplexing things will become clear. If Jesus was worried about what other people thought of him, that woman would not have heard the gospel. Not this day. And if she had not have heard the gospel this day from Jesus, something even greater would not have happened. The city would not have heard the gospel. Which prepared things for something much further on. One moment that Jesus spends with a woman doesn't just change this day or this week, but years down the track, results will follow. Instead, by Jesus taking the time to speak with her, she finds salvation, and her life will never be the same. It's changed forever. That day, she went out to the well with an empty pot, and she left with a full well. This outcast woman would then be the catalyst to change her city. So let's think a little bit about what takes place here. The aftermath, the results of what happens by Jesus taking a few moments to speak to this woman about him being the living water. One of the first lessons we learn has to do with our personal witness. Verse 27 says, And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her pot, and went her way into the city, and saith to men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Here is a, a woman who we, we see with a, a passionate belief. As she comes to Jesus, she leaves that day passionately believing in Jesus Christ. So she went... And she goes to tell people what she has found. She is so excited. She is so excited about what she has just found in her soul that the very thing she went out there to get, she left behind. She went out with her pot to get water. When she went back to the city, the pot is still at the well. She is so deeply excited to share what has happened in her life. thing that took her there was left behind. Reminds me, and I couldn't get this song out of my head as, as I, I studied a, a wonderful old song. I heard the voice of Jesus say, 
Behold, I freely give. The living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. She went that day with excitement. Her belief was simple, but it was sure. She was confident in what she had found. She was passionate about what she had found. And that passion develops from a deep belief and a personal contact with Jesus. Those are some things we'll see more deeply as we go along. This woman believed Jesus deeply. And we know she believed Jesus deeply because her actions showed it. Her life showed she deeply believed Jesus. You know, our actions and our motives in life are a good indicator of our belief. What we do expresses what we believe. Now, when she leaves and she goes, what did she tell them? Verse 9, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? She's stunningly honest in her appraisal and in her, her witness. Jesus, when she went out there, exposed her heart. And when she goes and tells the, the men in the city what she has found and what she has done, she doesn't try and hide it. She tells them, this man exposed my heart. He showed me who I really was. Now, she is saying that to a group of men who know who she is. They live in the same town. They know what she's like, where she's been. It showed that he was the way to deal with the sin that she had, with the hurt in her heart, and with the shame that she bore. When was the last time you had a conversation like that, that deeply honest? Jesus exposed my heart. Jesus made me see myself truthfully, exposed my selfishness, identified my hurt, revealed my shame. I also found in Jesus the one who could remedy all of those things, she said. The one who exposed all of that in me is also the one who can remedy all of those things, who could revive my weary soul. Satisfaction of Jesus doesn't just come from hiding what's truly in us, but from bringing it to light so that it can be healed. I'm not going to be satisfied by hiding away what's within me, but by letting Jesus expose it so that he can heal it. Be honest with people about the work of God. Truthfully, we're not hiding things as well as we think on the inside. People know we struggle. People know we fall and we falter. And, and being a Christian isn't trying to put on a, a happy face and have people think it's all good. Be honest. Jesus exposes the wickedness inside me so that he can heal it. So that he can remedy it. He brings up the hurt and shame within me so that he can be the balm I need. So he can with you. The humility that she has in being so deeply honest is also expressed and extends to the way that she shares her news. She's a disrespected woman in her community. The chances that these men, who were probably elders in the city, 
The chances that these men are going to listen to her speak on anything of substance and believe her is almost zero. They are the leaders of the town. She is a woman, a disrespected woman. So the chance that if she says, this is the one, you need to see him, and she's dogmatic about what she says and is telling them what they need to do, they're going to reject her. So she knows that. And in her humility, she is not dogmatic or forceful or authoritative in the way that she shares what has happened to her. What does she do? She invites them to investigate Jesus themselves. Is this not the Christ? Go see. Go see for yourself if he is not the one we've been looking for. Don't take my word for it. Don't try and believe me. I'm telling you what he did for me. Find out for yourself. Just like Jesus is not afraid to be misunderstood, Jesus is not afraid to be investigated. He will answer the questions. So she says to them, here is a man who exposed everything within me and is healing that within me. He is the living water. I think he's the Messiah. Could he be? And she invites them to investigate for themselves. Most people aren't going to believe Jesus because you tell them they need to believe Jesus. They need to discover for themselves that they need Jesus. To see the need within themselves, to discover who Jesus is. So our job as the people of God, as Christians, is to invite people to investigate Jesus. Invite people to see Jesus for themselves. And to see that he is what they need. He is who they need. Now, while Jesus has been talking with the woman and, and she now runs back, the disciples walk back from the town, but they walk back from the town alone. As she leaves, the disciples arrive back. Perhaps they crossed paths. They must have because they saw them uh, her with Jesus. Now, it's, it's interesting because they come back with food, but they don't come back with people. They knew who they were traveling with. They had believed Jesus to be the Messiah. That's why they're there. They knew who they were traveling with. Surely their very presence in that city buying food raised questions. Now it wasn't uh, uh, uncommon or it never happened that people would, Jews would buy food in Samaritan cities, but it wasn't usual because it was defiled. So their very presence in the city, buying food, so this group of disciples must have raised questions. Why are you here? This isn't normal. Why are you here? And as the people ask them questions, why are you, why are you here? Why do you want my food? Don't you think this would be defiled? Maybe they could have answered, well, our teacher brought us this way, our rabbi brought us through this way, and... He's, he's out by the well. You should come meet him. But their mind wasn't on spiritual things. It was on which source they were going to put on their subway. They need to be learning to think spiritually in all things. 
Open door may appear at any time and can easily be missed. The disciples believed Jesus. The disciples were following Jesus. Why aren't they bringing people out of the city to meet Jesus? Maybe they did, and the Samaritans didn't want to listen to them. Perhaps. But it brings another thought to mind. We passionately believe we need to be prepared to share. There is a a disease which afflicts uh, probably the, the greatest majority of Christians. Someday syndrome. It afflicts so many of us. That is, someday I'll share the gospel. The woman didn't suffer from someday syndrome. She met Jesus. She found in him what satisfied, and so she went and shared what she had found. But too many of us live our lives thinking, I don't know enough. What if, what if somebody asks me a question and I don't know the answer to that question? So when I get it all figured out, when I've got it down in my head, then, then I can share. I can answer the questions. I can follow through on those, those things. The woman's faith was simple, but it was strong. She was going to share what she knew. The truth is, you will never have all the answers. Someday, we'll never come. Neither will your prince, but that's an entirely different thing. We're always waiting for the answers. We're always going to find somebody who has a question we don't know the answer to. There is never an end to learning. There is never an end to questions. You are never going to be fully prepared. This woman leaves the well and goes and shares the gospel. Think about Paul. Paul meets Jesus, at the time Saul, on the way to Damascus, and immediately he's preaching the gospel. Think about Andrew, who we met just a little while ago in John. Andrew is led to Jesus by being pointed there by John the Baptist. And immediately, Andrew finds his brother Peter. He says, Peter, you need to meet this man. Then we're brought in to meet Philip. And Philip immediately goes to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you need to meet this man. Come and meet him. None of them had the answers. All they knew was, here is a man who, as sure as I can tell, is the Messiah. Come see for yourself. Because salvation is in the gospel. Salvation doesn't come because I have all the answers. God, through the gospel, saves. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Not me, not you, the gospel. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when he went to Corinth, he says, I didn't come with great swelling words and and trying to to convince you and, and sway you and woo you. I preach to you Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the one who saves This woman wasn't popular. She wasn't an influencer in her society. She was held in derision. Yet Christ reached down through her and reached others 
God does not need powerful, popular, influential people to do his work. God uses normal, ordinary people like you and me to reach the world. People who don't have all the answers, but people who believe deeply that Jesus is the answer. So we have a personal witness in a prepared harvest. Verse 31 says, In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? And Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. As we've been saying, we need a passion for God himself. Now, we can't be too hard on the disciples here, and too often I am, and shouldn't be. We can't be too hard on them because they are still learning. And the very moment that we find them in here is Jesus teaching them this very lesson to learn and to grow and to see what Jesus can and, and, and do. They are, they are being taught by Jesus to see the world, to think of the world entirely differently from everything they have ever done before, everything they've ever thought before. And Jesus is flipping that all on their head. So Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them. To teach them, one, about a passion for God himself. Jesus says to them in verse 34, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. What is truly satisfying? God. You're never going to be truly passionate about ministry. You're never going to be truly passionate about your service for God or the things that you can do for God or, or anything in the spiritual realm or the Christian realm if you are not first passionate about God himself. This takes us back to what we, we talked about when we talked about prayer earlier in the year. Before you seek God's hand, before you seek what God can do, seek God himself, seek his face. It doesn't matter what you do. If you do not have a passion for God himself, you will never have a true passion for the work of God. The psalmist says it in Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. What is he saying? He's saying delight in God, and he will satisfy your heart. He will be what you need. When you're passionate about God, you will be passionate about what he is passionate about. If, if, if I love God, I will love what God loves. And I will learn to love more deeply what God loves. Isaiah says, Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Passion for God gives us strength. We need to have a passion for God himself first. And having a passion for God himself first, we will then have a passion for God's work. It never goes the other way around. You never have a passion for God's work which will lead you to a passion for God. It never works that way. 
But it will always work. If I have a passion for God himself, I will have a passion for his work. To know and to serve God is our meat. It fills. It satisfies. It strengthens. It nourishes. When we do all to the glory of God, that is when we are at our happiest. There's an old uh, saying, I, I think a poet first, first penned these words, man is so made that whenever anything fires his soul, impossibilities vanish. It's, if God fires your soul, you will serve him, you will love him, you will work for him. The passion for serving God comes primarily in a passion to serve others. That's how our passion for God, that's how our service for God is most, most importantly expressed. People. Serving other people. Passion for God cultivates a soft heart. Passion for people is lacking in your life, then that's when we need to check where our relationship with God is. So we need to consider from the passion for God the priorities of our life. Jesus' priority, to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. To do God's will. The priorities of our society are upside down. Why are we so dissatisfied in our society? Because we're looking for meat in all of the wrong places. We're looking to be filled and to be satisfied and to be nourished by temporal things. And if ever there was a time where that is becoming increasingly aware, it is now. Australia has lived for so long with the idea of, of achieving the great Aussie dream, of having a, a home and a land. And if we can have our own little place and our own little land, we've achieved the Australian dream so that we can get to a better place than where we are now. That's why so many are struggling mentally and emotionally now. Because the great Aussie dream is turned into a nightmare. The very thing that we hope will satisfy us is the very thing that is causing us our dissatisfaction. And it doesn't matter if it's the great Aussie dream of a house and land or if it's the desire for a, a new car or a, or a relationship or whatever it is. Inevitably, we will find the very thing we pursued that we thought would satisfy us is going to be the very thing that causes us our most great dissatisfaction. Because it's temporal and it's weak and it's sinful and we find our hope slipping away. Do not love the world, John says, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Satisfaction comes when God's priorities are our priorities. And what does God prioritize? God's priorities are to lead people to living water, to seek the lost, and to lead people to Jesus Christ. To be wise. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Win souls doesn't mean to evangelize and to share the gospel and to, to be an evangelist. 
To win souls means to influence, to lead, to do good, to win them over in thought. Wisdom is giving your life to lead people to the truth. So they understand the truth. A wise life, a satisfied life, is one that is lived in passion for God and passionately pursuing God's will. And so Jesus tells us with that priority, pray for harvest. Say ye not, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest, which is probably a, a normal saying there about the urgency of, of things. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Jesus has a heart for people. How do you know what Jesus is passionate about? Because Jesus has said this on more than one occasion. That very same statement, he said on a number of occasions in different places throughout the gospel. Lift up your eyes. The harvest is ready. People need salvation. Has anything changed since those days? Only one thing has changed since the day Jesus uttered those words, and that is the urgency because time is now less than it was then. People put hearts on temporal things. Jesus' heart has always been towards people. His heart is to spread the gospel, to reach his people. So he says, pray for labors in the harvest. Now, don't mistake Jesus' words here when he says to pray for labors in the harvest. He is not saying pray for someone else to go. He is saying, pray for others to go while you are going. So he says to his disciples, look up. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking around at the temporal things. See the great need that is before you. I have a feeling these weren't just words. I have a, I have a feeling... And this is how I picture it in my mind, and this is clearly just a picture in my mind. The truth remains the same, but I have a feeling when Jesus says to them here, and he says, look on the fields, he lifts up his hands and he gestures for them to look behind them. And as the disciples turn around and they look over the fields behind them, they see the men of Samaria walking through the fields, ready to hear the gospel. These weren't just words. A city was on its way out, and they hadn't seen it. They hadn't noticed. The field is ready, he says. The field is ready. We're not praying for God to work in the world. God is already at work in the world. Been talking for years here in Australia about this great revival that's going to sweep through Australia. Stop waiting for some revival to come. Stop praying for God to do some great work in the nation. The time is now. We're not waiting for God to start a work. He's already working. The field is ready. We're just not looking. Remember our hymn of the month last month? Revive us again. There is reward for your labor, he says. The wonder of God's harvest is in that the sowing and the reaping take place at the same time. As one sows, another is also reaping, and they rejoice 
together. Sometimes you will see the harvest, and sometimes you won't. Paul said it this way, I have planted, Apollos has watered, but God gives the increase. Perhaps when Jesus said this, maybe he had in mind John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist had been laying the foundation and speaking and preaching repentance, and now the disciples are seeing the results. Results which they hadn't worked for. The reward for your labor isn't the number that you can say you led to Jesus Christ. When you stand before Jesus Christ at your day of judgment, Jesus is not going to say, I've got a tally here of everyone who confessed my name because of you. And here's the list, and you have uh, 356. Good job, but not nearly as good as the next person who has 14,255. There's no list. God isn't rewarding us on the number of people you can say, I led 10 people to Christ this week. That's not the point. Because sometimes you're going to labor and you're going to sow and you will never, ever know this side of eternity if anything happened with that sowing. But that's why Jesus says both the sower and the reaper rejoice together. Some sow and see the harvest, and some reap and see the harvest. But here is the beauty of it all. As we share our personal witness in a prepared harvest, we will see people change. It's the purpose for service. Verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans would come unto him, they besought him that they would tarry with them. And he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his word, of his word, own word. And Jesus said unto the woman, or sorry, and said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. Here is the purpose for our service. Why? Did Jesus go through Samaria that day and stop at the well? People. Why, when asked, did Jesus stay another two days in that city in Samaria? People. The heart of ministry, the heart of God, is people. The disciples are seeing a harvest from John the Baptist's preaching of repentance. They're seeing why. The heart of ministry isn't church properties, programs, PowerPoints. None of that goes to heaven. People go to heaven. A heart for people comes from a heart for God. That is the purpose for service. People. It's our purpose for service because people change. The heart of Christianity is this. People change. It's why I have hope every time I stand and preach. I believe through the word of God, people change. This city of Samaria, 
This city of Samaria was changed as a result of this woman. And it was prepared this day for an even greater awakening. Years later, after Jesus would be crucified, resurrected and ascend into heaven and the day of Pentecost comes and the spirit empowers the church and the church grows and expands and then comes under persecution and, and people go elsewhere. Philip would go to Samaria. And in Acts chapter 8, we find while Philip is in Samaria preaching the gospel, because of the foundation that has been laid already, revival breaks out in Samaria again. So great is the gospel witness in Samaria again that Peter and John have to go see for themselves how great this is. And it started because Jesus spent some time with a woman who then shared the gospel with someone else. Why are we here? Why do we preach the gospel? Why do we study God's word? So that God can change lives. Nothing, nothing satisfies like Jesus and seeing him change lives eternally. So here is the power of a witness. A city was changed because Jesus talked to one woman. That woman talked to others. Never underestimate the power of your witness. Remember, the value isn't in the reaping only. I've said this before, and I will say it a thousand times more. God is not in the business of addition. God is a multiplier. He multiplies. Your witness may not change a city today. But by telling one person, it may change a family. And changing the family may change the generations that follow. And with every changed life, those lives reach into other lives. They change another one who changes another family, who changes another generation, who changes another life, who changes another family, who changes another generation. All because one woman shared the gospel. Never underestimate the power of your witness for Jesus Christ. Adoniram Judson ministered in Burma, what we know as Myanmar now. He ministered there for six years, a very hard six years, before he found his first convert to Jesus Christ. It would take him 12 years to have 18 converts. That's long, hard work. After nearly 40 years in Burma, when he died, there would then be 100 churches and 8,000 believers. I have met and am friends with, personally, people who had relatives that were saved as a result of Adoniram Judson. One life can make a huge difference and you may never know it. 
If you are here this morning and you don't believe Jesus Christ as your saviour, you haven't believed. We want you to know that Jesus is what you need. He's what you need to satisfy you completely. This Samaritan woman we've been looking at had a complicated, messy life and she found in Jesus the one she needed. Or perhaps, perhaps you relate more to Nicodemus from John chapter 3. Maybe you're the respectable person. You've got religion, accepted in society, more upstanding. Maybe you fit Nicodemus more than you fit the woman here at the well. It makes no difference. Jesus is the answer to both of them. The messed up, crazy, rejected life or the respectable religious one, Jesus is the answer for both. No matter where you are, Jesus is the one who will give you living, satisfying, refreshing water for your soul. So today I'm inviting you to see Jesus for who he really is. Investigate him. Ask the question, see who Jesus is. As believers, we want our lives to be examples of the satisfaction that Jesus gives. And satisfaction doesn't just come in in hollow belief of Jesus, but living for him, doing his will, doing his work. Showing those around us that Jesus is indeed our meat, our satisfying, life-giving water. So believer, let's speak of the life-changing gospel. Sometimes we get so caught up in trying to be a Christian, that is doing things, doing the work, fulfilling our duty, that we forget why we're a Christian. Find your satisfaction in God. Let him satisfy your soul. And from your growing passion for God, you will become passionate about what he is passionate about. And what is he passionate about? Making disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons we have been able to learn from your life as you minister. And truly, it is a reminder that we deeply need so very often. It's far too easy for us, dear God, to get burdened and sidetracked and weighed down and pulled away by the cares of this world. We want to serve you. We want to see lives changed, but sometimes we get distracted. So, dear God, help us, remind us of your glory, of your beauty, of your wonder that we might look to you and find in you our great satisfaction, the filling that we need. Lord, we pray. We know that the results are always in your hand. But today we ask, dear God, use our witness, use our testimony, our invitation for others to find Christ through us, through our witness, through our testimony. Change people 
as you are changing us. Use us, dear God, as instruments of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.